There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our guest today is Jennifer Tracy, transformational coach and author of Inside the Mind of Suicide and From the Deepest Darkness to Light of Hope, Strategies and Solutions to Build Resiliency While Fighting Anxiety, Depression, and PTSD. Jennifer Tracy, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Hi, so glad to be here. Thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Jennifer Tracy married young and had three daughters by the time she was 24. At the age of 29, she lost her husband and one of her twin daughters in a car crash caused by a drunk driver. Her two surviving daughters, Michaela and Amber, were left with permanent injuries. Within a year of that life-altering crash, Jennifer was diagnosed not only with post-traumatic stress, but also a brain malformation. Instead of being a victim and giving to those circumstances, with God's help, Jennifer focused on being a survivor and forged all these events into something significant and positive. Jennifer, you grew up in Colorado. Take us back there. What was your life like as you were growing up and how did it shape who you are today? Oh my gosh, Colorado is such a fun place to live. Um, I grew up in the mid part of Colorado. It's so funny now because they call that Northern Colorado. So the Thornton, Arvada area is, you know, where I grew up. But if you live in Denver, that's Northern Colorado. Um, after Brian and Brittany were killed, I actually moved even further north, all the way up to like Fort Collins, Loveland area. And to me, that's actually called Northern Colorado. So it's just funny depending on where you live, but never did live in the Springs. Uh, obviously the beautiful mountains uh, were amazing. And I'm trying to think what else about Colorado, just the people growing up for me was, was a big deal. 2004 was the year you lost your husband, Brian, and one of your daughters, Brittany, to a drunk driver. The death of a spouse is a devastating loss, especially at a young age. The death of a child is even more unimaginable. You've described that as the day a part of you died. People grieve differently. How'd you begin to mend and how long did that process take? You know, it's been 17 years, Chris, uh, since they died. And for me, it's one of those things where I think about that now and I think about how long that's actually been. If I was to truly go back and take you to the first week, month, and year uh, physically, uh, I was in so much pain emotionally that I would have nosebleeds, that I'd have to have my nose cauterized in the emergency room just to get it to stop bleeding. Uh, I remember being in the hospital with my two surviving daughters and being in like a break room for parents and being down on my knees, just screaming horrifically. Uh, you know, there's no way to sugarcoat that time period. Uh, of course, since this was a drunk driving crash, I was in and out of court uh, against Mr. Goonan. And so there's court hearings. Uh, you know, papers get delivered to your house where it that from the coroner's office, and no one really prepares you for opening a piece of mail that tells you how your loved ones were actually killed. Like, 
what was it that actually killed them? And you read this coroner's report. I mean, there's no way to sugarcoat that first year. There's one thing that stands out very, very profoundly for me, though. And that was that I learned something from a flight attendant. The flight attendant says that if you're flying with a child, in the event that you need the oxygen mask, you should put that oxygen mask on yourself first. Now, I can tell you as a parent, my first inclination would be to want to save my children. I don't know why that analogy stuck with me so vividly, but within that first year, I realized if I wanted to save my daughters, I was also going to have to save someone else first. And who was that? That was me. And so I, that first year, that second year, that third year, I made sure that we got into grief counseling, that I stayed in to see my primary care physician, that sleep was a priority to me, that I didn't stuff my emotions, that I connected. Uh, I tried really hard to go to church, but I felt a lot like an outsider showing up and people just not having a clue how to support me. People would say things to me that were so hurtful that I know were not intention, but it was a very, very messy time. But if I had to put it into one thing, it would be that I knew I had to keep fighting for myself. How were you ultimately diagnosed with post-traumatic stress? And what was the process that led to the identification of the brain malformation? Yeah, so the PTS is a really painful story, actually. And I'm not going to take you all the way there today because that could be an entire hour. But um, I went through this thing called an MMPI, and it's basically studying for uh, what you're what you're facing. And what that came back for me was that I had post-traumatic stress and severe deep depression. When I was diagnosed with that, there was a sense of relief. Uh, in, in regard for me, like, okay, this is what I have. This is what I'm facing. There was a sense of relief of like, I'm not crazy, but there also came this social stigma. Uh, and in my book, one of the things I talk about is scars that people can't see. So can you imagine if you looked at me today, you would have absolutely no idea that I've buried a husband and a child. You'd have no idea that I was on disability. You'd have no idea that when I would walk into my doctor's with a Medicare card because I was on disability, that the lady checking me in would double look at me and go, like, I'm confused. Like, you, like I literally had people check me in and say, aren't you too young for Medicare? What they didn't know is that because I was on disability, I had Medicare. So, yeah, I was 30 years old with a Medicare card. But those were the types of stigmas that I started facing that people don't know how to talk about. And for myself, what I realized that I went through a time period where if I could make the outside match the inside, which was kind of messed up and struggling, then when I handed that Medicare card over, I didn't have to explain why I looked all put together and yet I had a disability card. So it was very confusing. Um, the brain malformation was actually diagnosed way before Brian and Brittany were ever killed, but I, I was just managing symptoms. So headaches, 
thyroid disease. I had this thing called gastroparesis, which is where the stomach muscles don't contract. And it wasn't until 2012 that I actually had to have the um, decompression. And that's where they go in. They cut out the skull. They cut out the brain. They replace it with a titanium plate to hold it all together. And so it's funny, people who have a, um, a Chiari brain, the little tagline for that is too much brain to contain. And so I like to joke and say that it's all in my head now because it really is. <laughs> so, yeah, fun stuff. Did the brain malformation cause or shape your suicidal thoughts in any way? And did it feed into your post-traumatic stress at all? It did not. Um, again, that's something that I talk about. And it's actually the reason why I wrote my book, Chris. Because when I started speaking back in 2009, I would stand on a platform or stage in front of people. And I would say to people that I had battled through suicide, that I had battled through post-traumatic stress and anxiety and thoughts of suicide. And everyone always assumed that those thoughts of suicide came after my husband and daughter were killed. And if you will, just hang with me just for a second through this, okay? I was a young mom. I was 24 years old and I had to have a hysterectomy. And because of that hysterectomy, everything inside of my body was really messed up. And so for an entire year, I battled suicidal ideation. I had thoughts that just played on repeat that said, my daughters were better off without me, that I should just end my life. I battled that fiercely for a year. Walk myself into the psychiatric unit, come out of the psychiatric unit, more stabilized, doing better, and then Brian and Brittany were killed. So if you can't imagine now, fast forward to me with me to 2009, and I'm standing on a stage and I tell people that I'd battled through all of those things. And they all look at me and assume that my thoughts of suicide came after Brian and Brittany were killed. And it was almost as if that was acceptable. People were like, Oh, rightly so. I could totally imagine that you were suicidal. Like, yeah, if I went through something like that, I could see why you would be suicidal. But the truth of the matter is that I found myself battling suicidal ideation by no fault of my own. I did everything right. And when none of those things were working, I had the courage to walk myself into the psychiatric unit. And that very thing, Chris, would come back against me after Brian and Brittany were killed, my mother-in-law went into the system and said, this lady battled suicidal ideation, and I'm not sure that she's fit to raise her children. So the very thing that we tell people to do today, which is to go get help, was used against me. So that is why I wrote my book, because I leave nothing out. I pour into it all of the nuggets, all the things that I've learned, because I absolutely want people to be A, prepared for those moments, prepared for the system, prepared for the unfairness uh, of just the, the society that we live in. And um, people want to come along and support, but they don't know how. They say things that they don't mean. And so that is definitely why I wrote the book, was to really bring awareness to all of those things. You wrote in that book during your two-year battle with suicide that you felt like your mind was, was kidnapped and held for ransom. You just mentioned a moment ago about being able to walk yourself out in to get treatment because you realized it. 
you know, would it take for you as a person, as a human, as an author to get your life and your mind back? So getting my mind and life back are two different things. Getting stabilized in the psychiatric unit for me personally, uh, what they discovered was that I had thyroid disease, that I had absolutely no estrogen in my body at all. And because of those two things, I had not slept for two years. So in the first chapter of my book, what I do is I kind of break down this, like, what does it take for someone who's battling suicidal ideation to get their mind and life back, right? And what I first come out with is this concept called victories on the hill. And what I say is we all find ourselves on that ledge so very differently. And what we need to stop doing as a society is trying to solve a multifaceted problem uniquely. And we need to go in and really help people identify for themselves what's going on with them. So here's an example, okay? I've worked as a coach with um, some great leaders who found themselves on the ledge of suicide because they broke a moral code. They are not struggling with thyroid. They are not struggling with sleep. They broke a moral code. And because of that, they don't know how to forgive themselves. They're completely ashamed. And they are so afraid that if someone found out what they did, that they would not be able to go on. And so they are battling thoughts of suicide. Second coaching client has nothing to do with breaking a moral code. In fact, great person, right? But they are struggling on the home life. They're struggling with addiction, has nothing to do with thyroid, has nothing to do with the moral code, and yet they are battling thoughts of suicide. So do you see how each of us can find ourselves on that ledge so very differently? So as a society, we have to stop saying, look, what worked for me will work for you. What we need to do instead is to help people stop and analyze how did you get where you are? What have you tried? What's worked? What hasn't worked? Opened your mind. Stop being so stubborn. Make sure you remove pride because you know neither of those are going to help you in the solution. And yet you and I both know that there is real fear and stigma that people face, right? If you're the chief, if you're a lieutenant, uh, if, you know, if you're a sergeant and you walk in and you admit to those things that are happening inside right here, there's so much that you can lose for doing that. And so that's why you and I are out here trying to change this narrative because it's actually courageous. Here's where I'll say what has to change. Providing a safe place for people to walk in and get those things analyzed, that's what has to change. Because no one should fear seeking help. And yet that's the very thing that we tell people to do is to seek help and then they get penalized. Getting my life back, which is your second part, that's a series of things. That's being willing to go through the process. You have some compelling questions about mental health. Specifically, have we thought about how much courage it takes for someone with mental health issues to admit they need help, to talk to someone about their trouble, and to seek assistance, even in the face of potential career relationship consequences, which you just touched on? Can you answer those questions for us and help us bring to perspective those challenges they face? You know, um, it's interesting because if you think about 
uh, some of the bravest among us, our warriors, our firefighters, our veterans, um, even just big, bold leaders out there today, right? If you think about the courage it takes to do so many other things. So for instance, if you're a police officer, right? And you run into a scene, the courage that it takes to do that is incredible. Can you imagine standing there and the self-control that it takes when someone's spitting at you, laughing at you, all of those types of things, right? Why is it that it's so hard to translate that same courage into seeking help for ourselves? And so really the bigger question when you ask that is, is it the same amount of courage? Is it the same type of courage? And I think that it is. I think what we have to do is come alongside people and assure them of a couple things. If you're driving around with a car that has all these check engine lights going on, first, you've got to identify where's a safe place to go. If you knew that you could drive your car in there today, does it really require courage or do you just want to know that there's a safe place for you to do that? And that's the difference. Do you see that? Like, it's such a different thing. It's like, you already have courage. If we could just get what's underneath there figured out, you know, are you afraid of losing your job? Are you afraid of people looking at you differently? If we could figure those things out first, you already have courage. You already have resiliency. So helping people understand that and get clear on that really is more of the bigger picture, I think. You said in a 2016 interview that the pain never goes away, yet you forgave the man who killed Brian and Brittany. You were even willing to advocate for his parole if he received alcohol and drug counseling. Now, I understand that part of forgiveness is freeing ourselves from a psychological prison, but many people find that level of forgiveness, releasing someone who has wronged us from an actual prison to be something they just couldn't do. That was 14 years after the crash. Did it take that long to reach that decision, or were you willing to forgive that even sooner? I was actually able to process forgiving Mr. Goonan pretty quickly. Uh, I come from uh, a place of faith, and I'm not sure why, but I think of Jesus, and I think of the message that he shared, which was, you know, forgive and you shall be forgiven. And when I think about forgiveness, I'm like, wow, he didn't really say, you know, Forgive up to a certain point, and then at that point, you have to stop. And so what I find is that most people hear this word and this concept of forgiveness and that they desperately want to do it. They they look at me and they're like, oh my gosh, how did she do that? I want to be able to do that in my life. So forgiving him is something that I did do. It took me a while to actually come back and articulate how I did it. And to me, those are two different things. Do you see that? Like the fact that I did it is one, but the second question is how did I actually do it? So I created this concept and this strategy called the forgiveness game plan. And in it, it really helps you. It's four parts that I take you through because you have to understand some things about forgiveness. So this one's kind of fun for me. If you would stop for just a second. And if I was to challenge you on the spot and say, hey, Chris, Can you give me the definition of forgiveness? This is where everyone just stops when when we're working together. If I'm live in front of an audience, think about that. Think about how everyone comes back with their definition of forgiveness 
so differently. So before we go anywhere, what I help people do is create this same working definition of forgiveness. So Webster's Dictionary says, to forgive means that you stop holding pain or anger towards an offender. It's almost like A plus B equals C. You stop holding pain or anger towards an offender. Here's where it's so beautiful, Chris. In the New Testament, it says, in your anger, don't sin. It doesn't say don't be angry. It says, in your anger, don't miss the mark. So once we create a working definition of what it really is, if we plug that into it, that little, little variable, think about that. If I apply Mr. Goonan into that, what I felt God was asking me to do was to stop holding Mr. Goonan responsible for the pain and anger that I felt. And if we're being honest, is there anything that Mr. Goonan can do that can ever bring back Brian and Brittany? Nope. What if you bring him in here to a room right now and you beat him to a pulp? Is that going to bring back Brian and Brittany? What if we give him the life sentence? What if I punish him forever? Is it ever going to give me back what I want? It won't, will it? So asking God to help me release Goonan and forgive him of that pain and anger is the first step. The second part is, how do I actually deal now with the pain that I'm left with? And that's where it gets good. That's where I get to really come in and say, what kind of pain and anger, what are you facing? And let's get into that. And let's create a strategy to actually work through that. That's my PowerPoint. That's a good PowerPoint. I think it's natural that someone who's been brought through what you've experienced, especially the loss of a spouse and a child, to have a strong understanding of and belief in resilience. You said resilience is the biggest pain point for many people. How so? Yeah. So think about some of these statements that are out there. Uh, you know, people say to me all the time, oh my gosh, you know, if that happened to me, I don't think I would make it. Uh, you know, how did you survive that? It's like, there is this thing about the human spirit that we can go through some of the most unimaginable things, right? So I feel like we all kind of have this in us where you hunker down, you go into this mode, you know, mama bear, like all of these different like things that, that come out in us. Here's where it stops though. We all reach a point where being resilient, like it no longer happens. Like all of us would raise our hand and say, you know, life threw such and such at me, whatever that is, it could be a divorce. It could be mom passed away, whatever that is. And we all like are resilient to a certain point, And then all of a sudden we're just not. And so that's the question is in that moment of when we're not being resilient anymore, whatever that looks like, you know, whether we've turned to addiction, whether we aren't leaving the house anymore, whether we're so full of anxiety, we're not talking to people, like whatever that moment is, right? We feel like we're not being resilient, but that's not the truth. What we're lacking is an actual strategy to 
to move through what we're facing in a new way. It has nothing to do with not being resilient. So one of the reasons why I love working with first responders and military veterans, active duty, those on the home front that love them, the reason why I love working with them, Chris, is because they already know how to be resilient. I don't have to teach them how to do that. Now, you and I both know that there are people out in the world who things happen to them and they are stuck. They aren't resilient. They they let life bog them down and they don't know how to to take that next step, right? Those are not my ideal clients. (laughs) Because to me, I'm like, I see those things that are there before you, but like, do you want to move through them or not? So do you see the difference of how some people have that kind of go-to and, and some people just sit down and get stuck. To that point, you know, you mentioned also that, you know, most people have never been taught to be resilient. How do we teach resilience and how do we learn from it? Yeah. And so again, I think like, think about people who grow up in their home with their parents. Our children watch how we navigate things. If you were to ask my oldest, One of the strongest suits that I brought into our home after Brian and Brittany were killed were two things. Giving both of them the freedom to talk about anything they wanted. And that's huge because if you ask some people, they go through tragedy and it's not okay to talk about it at home. So the second thing was giving them, you know, the first was the freedom. The second was communication. When I was struggling and at my worst with my PTSD, communicating to my daughters what was happening to me was vital. And that's that second piece of being honest to our children and saying, I'm not doing well right now. Will you hang with me while I go get some things fixed? And that takes courage, right? So how do you teach someone how to be resilient? You model it. You model it for them by having courage, by being honest, by never giving up. I cannot tell you how many times I've had to ask for help, how many times doors have been closed on me that I had to say, well, that one's closed. I guess I'm going to go look through another one. Um, I have to thank my dad because we are German and we are stubborn. And I know that this no quit in me comes from my dad. Like I, I just, I can't stand to quit. And so if something comes up against me, man, am I willing to absolutely just keep trying? And again, so many of us encompass that, right? But I feel like we just, it's so sad because society is not offering places where we can just show up and be honest. And I'm telling you when I'm coaching, some of the like most amazing moments are when people just get to say, this is my shit. This is my ugly shit. And I'm like, bring it because it doesn't scare me and the freedom to get that out is just, it's a turning point. We've been talking to author and motivational speaker, Jennifer Tracy. We'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We're back with Jennifer Tracy. Jennifer, you endured so much heartache at such a young age. What role has your faith played in your journey? Man, I am so thankful that my mama uh, taught me about Jesus when I was young. And I, you know, I understand that everyone has uh, a different faith. I understand that uh, we all come to God, higher power, so very differently. And in my book, uh, I have a chapter called When God Ran, and I really try to broach that subject very respectfully. But for myself personally, um, at a young age, I I read the whole entire Bible. And the Gospels have really stuck with me and 
Again, when it comes to forgiveness, I just think about Jesus. I just think about, this is so hard for me to share with you, Chris, but I think about the night before Jesus went to the cross and how he had his disciples with him and Judas betrayed him. And he, Jesus washed the feet of Judas, knowing that he would betray him. And so in my darkest times, in my times of doubt, in my times where I tried to walk away from my faith, where I was so angry at God for the things that I continued to face, those gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I just kept being reminded of, you know what? If Jesus would break tradition back then to feed the widow on the Sabbath and take flack for that, you know what? If Jesus would wash the feet of Judas knowing he would betray him, if Jesus would, you know, if Jesus would stand up and defend the prostitute who got caught in adultery, if he would do those things back then, then I was assured that he could handle my doubt, my pain, and my anger. And he reassured me of that, that he was sorry for the pain I was facing, that he was there with me, that he was near to the brokenhearted and I don't know what I would do without that hope, without that faith, but that does not mean that I have not wrestled. In fact, uh, I had a two or three year period where I called myself a doubter for Jesus. I was like, I, I don't know if I can believe anymore. After my brain surgery, Chris, I was so like, oh, I'm so done. I am so done. <laughs> like, when does this end? And yet, I had nowhere else to go. Like, what else do I have if I don't have the hope of eternity and getting to see my daughter again? Like, you take that from me and I've got nowhere to go, Chris. We mentioned that you're a transformational coach. When did you start and what do you love about that role? Oh my gosh, I love coaching. Um, the coaching actually came after the keynote speaking. So I started speaking in 2009. What I discovered, two things, kind of pain points for me, was that after I was done speaking, people wanted to connect. People wanted more from me. And I felt like here I just delivered this very powerful keynote speech and then I, I'd leave and that was it. And it was awesome, but there was, there was no way for people to get more. So writing my book was my first part. And then in my book, what I discovered was that people really connected to the concepts that I taught in there. And so that's when I started the coaching was really bringing people in through those teaching nuggets. And so now if you spend an hour with me, within an hour, I can usually see where your area of gap is. I've got five areas that I'm really looking for. And so right away, um, I'll build you an online portal and get you started. And one of the things that's unique about the way that I set up my coaching that's different is that... When you start with me, because I build this online portal for you, after our sessions are done, we do some work in there. There might be a homework or some type of thing that I give you, and you work on that in between sessions, so it feels like you're never leaving me, and that's why we are able to get um, stuff done so quickly. <laughs> it, it, you don't have to wait a week or two or three uh, to get back in to see me. As a coach, you tell your clients that their problems become yours. Now, we're used to psychologists, psychiatrists, other mental health professionals being very detached, both for their well-being and we're told for their patients. Your approach is exactly the opposite 
and very unusual. Why do things the way you do and how does it affect you and your clients? Oh my gosh, it's life-changing. Um, do you know that I just actually had this conversation with um, Doc Shauna Springer? And she is a doc for a reason. I just had this conversation with her. Here's the thing. Therapists are so needed. Uh, good ones like her, you need them. Absolutely. They can see things that I'm not able to see. So for instance, if you come to me and you tell me that you've got post-traumatic stress, we need those therapists. We need those psychologists because they are the ones that can, that can bring that in, right? Some of them are bound by law. Some of them are not allowed to bring in and say, yeah, when I battled suicidal ideation for a year, here's what I did or here's what I was thinking. And so sometimes I feel bad that the very thing that might be their strength, they're bound legally to not be able to do. So I don't want to diss them. I don't want to act like they don't have a place. Um, I actually see us as co, um, not collaborators, but powerful forces together. And that's actually why I love uh, Doc Springer so much is together we are very powerful. Um, but again, my approach is very different. And when I say to someone, your problems become my problems, um, what is that like? Yeah, it, it means that I absolutely am 100% in. So if I'm helping you navigate a divorce, if you are a lieutenant, and you're going for promotion, and you're actually battling anxiety and depression, and you're afraid if anyone finds out about that, that you're going to lose your job and not get the promotion. Oh, I am absolutely strategically thinking how I can help you navigate that system. And sometimes that means we have to navigate it outside of the box. Like I am all in trying to help you uh, find a solution for what you're facing. And yeah, I love it. So, your goal as a transformational coach is to empower people to the point that they no longer need you to the extent that they do at the start. And you only work with clients who commit to a minimum of three months of coaching. Why three months? And how much time do you typically spend with someone in that three-month period? So uh, three months is just because I know those strategies that I'm going to teach you right out of the gate. There's three very powerful ones. One is that forgiveness game plan. And once I teach it to you, that following week, whoever's in your life, whether it's your spouse, your kids or work or whatever, like I call that, um, like, how was, how, how was that this week? Like, did you implement it? Was that messy? Did it work? So there's a part where I'm teaching you it, but then I'm watching for you to go out and practice. And so after three months, I've taught you everything you need. And so really when you're coming back to me, it's, did you implement it? How did that work? If not, here's how we, you know, that's where we get into the nitty gritty. Most of my clients stay with me for a year. And by that, but by the end of that year, I mean, they are just in a completely different place. But um, I just, I can't teach you something in a first week and expect for you to find life transformation. <laughs> well, you know, you just talk about teaching and practice. You believe that a good coach knows that failure is part of the process but their real power is the ability to inspire players to stay focused on the end game so they can win. How do you keep your players focused on the end game? Yeah. So we create, you know, that's right out of the gate. Something that we do is everyone has to define for them what their war is. And I know I got to share this with you. 
But the day that Brian and Brittany were killed, I felt like the thing that the enemy would want the most from me would be for me to die that day too. Die emotionally, die physically, maybe at my own hand, turn to drugs or alcohol, not show up to my kids' functions, not love them. That's what the enemy would want from me that day. And so my war, my very clear defined war is this. That is the end of my children's life. They will look back and say, my mom did not die on that day too. And with that insight, can you imagine all of the things that I've gone on to face after they were killed? Like I have gone on to face homelessness. We were left without a house or a car. I was faced with having to fight for them and prove that I was a fit mom because I had been in the psychiatric unit. I had to go and have brain surgery and look up at the two things that I would die for, not knowing whether or not I would wake up or be paralyzed from brain surgery. Like I've had to go on and face multiple things after Brian and Brittany were killed and keeping that war crystal clear, my war insight is pivotal. And here's the thing. Have I lost a lot of battles? Oh my gosh. Yes, I have. I have struggled so deeply in relationships. If you haven't noticed, I'm kind of part warrior. (laughs) And so that can make it a little tough because sometimes I'm like, you know, and sometimes I'm this beautiful woman who wants to be in, in a dress and high heels and like go out on the town. And that can be a bit confusing, I think, for men. (laughs) Um, I'm so thankful for Jeremy. He's the love of my life. He is my steady rock. I have actually found someone who just, he is my, he is my steady support. He's not intimidated by the warrior side in me. He absolutely loves the beautiful side of me. We love to sing karaoke together. Music is our jam. Like, I am so thankful that after all this time, I found somebody who gets me and just lets me be me. Well, you're one hell of a warrior and a hell of a woman. So thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you. So next, I'd like to go over several different pieces of advice you give people. First, we need to stop beating ourselves up over our imperfections. Where do we learn that behavior? Why do we do it? And how do we stop doing it? Yeah. I mean, think about that, Chris. Can you ever be perfect? No, we know the answer to that. We already know that. We already know that, right? And so we're talking about something else. So bringing awareness to that is really the truth. So right smack dab in the middle of my book, I I present this concept. It's called strive for excellence. Grab your arrows, get to the start line and practice. Strive for excellence. There's no way that you're ever going to be perfect. Let's just, let's just, let's just get clear on that. Can we just strive for something else? So getting, getting clear on that, I think, is the first step. Uh, what was the second one? Well, second, you say, honor all of your emotions in the most positive way possible. Aren't some of our emotions counterproductive? Oh, boy. You set me up for a good one here. <laughs> okay. So I don't know if you are a person of faith or not, but does the Bible say that God is a jealous God? It does. 
Oh my gosh. What? What does that mean? God is a jealous God. I thought this was bad. So we chew on that. Um, do you remember I shared earlier how it says in your anger, don't sin? Well, what do you mean? It says while you're angry. Absolutely. Do you not think that warriors harness anger and channel it into something very powerful when, when they are out on the battlefield? They absolutely do. But you know what it is? They are crystal clear on what their mission is. So when people come to me and they say, you know what? I'm going through X, Y, and Z, and I'm so angry. Instead of me judging the fact that they're angry. If someone comes to me and they say, you know, I found that so-and-so was cheating on me. and I'm so jealous. I'm so angry. Why can we not look at those emotions and see what's, what's going on with them in a place, a safe place? Instead of being judged for having those emotions. And I can tell you right now, there are very few places where you can go do that. (laughs) And the third piece of advice, understand the difference between giving up and surrendering. What is the difference and why does it matter? Oh, this is a good one. Okay. Are you ready to hang with me through this one? I'm ready. Okay. If you want to grow corn out in a field right now, what do we have to do? We have to have a field, right? We have to buy corn. We have to prepare the soil, till it. Then we have to plant the corn. And then we have to wait seasons, right? Where we nurture the soil and the corn. Guess what happens in between all those steps that we just talked about? Surrender. Because even if you and I buy the field, even if you and I plant the corn and nurture it, are you and I in charge of growing the corn? We are not like we never get to take credit for that part, do we? Because that's like a mysterious thing, isn't it? Like how in the world does the corn grow underneath the ground? Like that's a pretty cool thing, right? So giving up would be me sitting on a couch and saying, I want to grow corn, but I'm not going to buy the soil. I'm not going to plant the seeds. I'm not going to nurture it and I'm not going to wait through the seasons for it to grow. That's giving up. When I have done my part and now it's time to be patient and wait, that is surrender. And when you're clear on that, when you are clear on what your part is and you do it and you've done your best and now it's just time to wait, oh, it's beautiful. You believe that we all want to be known and truly love ourselves. There's a lot going on in our lives. We've got work, spouses or partners, kids, bills to pay, a little thing called a global pandemic. And maybe only after we've dealt with all of that, a little time for ourselves. How do we even find the time to know who we are and to start to love ourselves? And then what are the actual steps to getting that done? Well, that's a lot to unpack. And obviously, you know, if someone spends a year with me coaching, right, we're going to unpack all of that. But the first part I'm going to tell you right now, Chris, is so many people let the enemy live in between right here and right here, which is in our minds. And one of the very first places I start is right there. And this is a perfect example of that. So many people go to the gym because they say they're fat. So many people go to the gym because they hate themselves. So many people go to the gym because 
um, they don't love themselves or they think they're fat. So I want to just change that narrative right here, right now. I look at myself and if I have fat on my body and I'm unhappy with that, I look at myself and I say, Jennifer, I love you. You have fat on your body, but you are not fat. And because you love yourself, go to the gym and take care of yourself. Do you want to live a long life? Do you want to be here for your grandchildren? Do you want to feel better? Do you want those natural endorphins? So when I go to the gym, I go to the gym because I love me. I go to the gym because I'm already settled on the fact that like, yes, I have fat on my body, but that is not who I am. There is so much more to me. So right there, that thought, if you could capture just that one alone, we're just talking about fat, okay? But if you could capture that one alone every single time and refuse to let it live inside your mind, just that one, and change it into a positive statement, it's powerful. Same thing. Think about this one. I have PTSD. That can feel like a life sentence to people. Now, listen to me how I change this one. I have post-traumatic stress, but I successfully manage the symptoms every single day. So that is one of the places where we start absolutely is in our minds, because if we allow the naysayer or the enemy or anyone else to live in there, that's basically constantly tearing you down. And I cannot believe how many people put up with that. <laughs> that's the first place we got to start. We, we have to change the mind the way we talk to ourselves. In your second book, From the Deepest Darkness to the Light of Hope, you write about what you call the check engine light approach to self-discovery. Would you share with us what that is and how it works? Yeah, I shared that with you just a little bit earlier. But here's the thing. If you and I were driving together today and we were in the car, you know, if the check tire light came on, you might go, oh, my, hey, Jennifer, I need to pull over and just check my tire real quick. Would you feel fear or shame or even be embarrassed of that? Probably not. If the check um, oil light came on while you and I were driving, and that light came on, would you feel fear or embarrassed that that came on? If you and I are driving down the road and your check engine light came on, we are all kind of told that that check engine light means like, ooh, this is a bigger problem. Like you might want to take your car in and get this looked at like right away, right? Okay. If you and I were in the car together today and we drove into, where would you take your car? Let's say if you were going to have your engine checked, grease monkey, wherever, right? Right. Okay. Would you feel fear or shame doing that? And what's the first thing they're going to do when they pull that car in, they're going to lift the hood, right? And someone who's trained is going to look at why those lights are going off in the first place. That is exactly what I do with my clients. When you come in, we spend an hour together and I lift the hood, no fear, no shame, I don't need to know why all those lights are on. I just need to look in underneath and figure out why those are there in the first place. And then we just put out a plan to actually address the lights. Like that is such a different thing for me. Why, why do we have to feel fear or shame around the fact that that check engine light is on? So here's my 
my call to action for those who are listening today. If you're struggling with depression and anxiety and you're struggling silently, if you're in a position, if you're in leadership and you fear that going to get help is going to cost you, find a safe place to check in right now. Because I'm on a mission to help people address those lights way sooner than later so that we can prevent the car from being completely broken down on the side of the road. And what are some of those warning signs we should be aware of, you know, in case there's a family member or coworker that their check engine light is on that we can't see? Oh boy, that's a tough one. I mean, I think we're talking about two different things here. We've got some family members, friends who vocalize to us, hey, I'm struggling. Hey, I'm not doing well. Hey, I'm, you know, and they kind of tell us and we might feel hopeless to know how to help them or we even say like the wrong things that make them feel even more hopeless. I absolutely cannot recommend, like my book from the deepest darkness and Doc Springer's book are both great resources. Um, Together, we've created the Master Guide to Mental Wellness. We've packaged that in such a way that you absolutely need to go through those things so that even if you have it there as a preventative to know how to help someone else, it could save a life. Now, someone struggling silently, that's a tough one. Like if they are so brave facing it that you have no idea that they are even, you know, struggling with this at all, that is such a tough one. Those blindsided ones are really, really tough. Um, For me, what I look at is what I call point of reference. And that is, how are those people acting? Which is two years ago was that person not an angry person. And now today they're really angry. Two years ago, did that person come to all the birthday events? And now they're not. We just try to look for those things that possibly is a difference in how they're acting. Obviously, that's such a tough subject. Jennifer Tracy, thanks so much for being with us today. Yes, thanks for having me. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We're back next Tuesday, same time, same place. Until then, keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.